broadcast speaks to the free thinking movement that we see emerging in the minds of today's black youth of America. African youth must be re-educated to the scientific reasoning found in natural law if this movement is to reach its full potential. Inshallah, the African American will break free of non-scientific and tribal thinking paradigms that fail to counter immoral behavior as well as limit solid economic progress in African American communities. Assalamu alaikum. The following broadcast is part three out of Africa Science, Origins of Man, and Systems of Knowledge, recorded on January 3rd, 2017. So, radioactivity a chemical process that we find naturally in the universe can be used to measure the age of things. Now, in order to understand radioactivity and how it can be used to accurately measure time, you will have to have some basic knowledge of the composition of matter and how matter is transferred and transformed in our universe. Try to follow me closely as I systematically give you a crash course on matter, elements, atoms, radioactivity, and something interesting called isotopes. Don't worry, I will explain all of the terms and names as we go. Now, let's start from the top. All living and non-living things that exist on our planet and that exist in the universe is made up of matter. Yes, human beings are also made up for matter, from matter. So are the animals, the plants, the fish in the seas, the seas itself, even the earth. Everything in our universal reality is made up of matter. This includes things that we can see, feel, smell, taste, hear directly, and things that we cannot see or even feel directly. What is matter? Well, according to our current understanding of the knowledge that we have obtained from the study of our physical universe, matter is anything that has mass and takes up space. What is mass? Mass is anything that you can feel and weigh. Anything that you can feel and weigh. Now I think for most people, they have a fairly good understanding of what mass is, and such a concept can be easily illustrated just by looking around in the home that you live in. The table, the car that you drive, the food that you eat, this is all mass. But space, now that's a concept not easily defined. But we won't entertain this intellectual exercise in logic and reason at this time. It's not necessary. 
There are three known worlds of matter that we can classify. The macroscopic world of matter, the microscopic world of matter, and the sub-microscopic world of matter. The macroscopic world of matter you can feel, touch, and see with the naked eye. The microscopic world of matter and the sub-microscopic world are invisible to the naked eye. You need a high-powered microscope or some type of lasing device to see the microscopic world of matter. What is a lasing or what is lasing? Well, you've seen Star Wars, right? The Jedi Knight, the Death Star. Well, okay, that lightsaber is supposed to be a laser, but keep in mind, people, this is a movie. But we do have lasing devices that are used in medicine and chemical research. Man has not always had the knowledge of the micro and sub-microscopic world of matter. But we will see shortly how man over time came to know how such worlds existed. From chemical and physics research studies over the last 1,800 years, we now know today that all matter is composed of substances called elements, and all elements are composed of matter called atoms. What is an element? An element is any substance that is sustainable in our universe and yet cannot be separated into any other form of macroscopic matter. Again, macroscopic matter, any form of a substance or thing that you can feel, see, taste, or smell. What am I saying? What does this mean? For example, take the element iron. You can find iron in America and as far away as China. The iron found in China will look and feel the same as the iron found in the United States. The iron found in Russia will look and feel the same as the iron found in China. The iron found in all of these countries will have the same exact properties. This is what is meant by sustainable. We have even found iron in meteorites, meteorites that fall from the sky, from out in space. In fact, we find the element iron inside the human body. So pure iron is an element, and this sustainable element iron cannot be separated into any new parts, say like iron and also copper, the element copper. Or the element iron cannot be separated into the element gold and iron. Iron is iron, period. Likewise, gold is gold, period. We call all elements pure substances, meaning that's as basic as you're going to get with matter on the macroscopic level. This is a law of nature, pure substances. And this natural law holds true for all of the elements we find in our natural environment. The majority of the elements you can see with the naked eye. They have shape, they have form, and they have color.
A few elements cannot be seen with the naked eye. They have no shape, no form, and are generally colorless. It is these elements in nature that are the reasons and the causes for the events that we see and experience in the visible physical world that we live in. There are 118 elements of which 88 occur naturally, meaning you, I, or anyone else can go outside and using certain tools or equipment, even sometimes your bare hands, can find these 88 elements. The names of all of the elements can be found in what was earlier called the atomic chart, but today is now known as the periodic table. Just Google the periodic table and you will see the name and properties of the elements. In the history of Western science, Dmitry Mendeleev, the Russian scientist, is credited with publishing the first accurate table of naturally occurring elements arranged by atomic number and chemical properties in the year 1869. Elements are identified in the periodic table by using one or two letter abbreviations called symbols. Now this is very critical here, so listen. Take for example, the element hydrogen. It begins with an H. So the abbreviated symbol for the hydrogen is capital H. Carbon begins with the letter C. So the abbreviated symbol for carbon is capital C. Oxygen begins with the letter O. So the symbol for oxygen is capital O. You see the pattern here? Not that difficult, is it? Okay, but what happens if two elements begin with the same letter? Well, in that case, you use the first two letters of the name. So calcium begins with a C, like carbon, followed by an A. So to identify calcium from carbon, we label calcium CA. Using this method, we're able to keep the individual identity of all of the known elements in our physical environment separated. Now, I'm not going to debate here about the historical publications of Western science and how they take credit for the discoveries of all of the scientific disciplines, and particularly discoveries of the elements, and developing the knowledge of the atom that we have today. I'm not going to get into that, into that debate. Not today. But I can tell you right now that you can't tell me that other men of science outside of Europe had no influence on the discoveries of the elements and the development of our modern-day atomic periodic table. The outstanding schools of Timbuktu and Dejeuner in Africa in the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries and the House of Wisdom in Baghdad around the 7th, 8th, and 9th century, all had students who traveled from distant nations to study science and medicine 
at these historical universities. And what about the Islamic schools of Muslim Spain in the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries? Cities like Toledo and Cordoba established universities of great learning in the fields of mathematics, medicine, chemistry, and astronomy. The Muslim scientists had a very advanced understanding of the elements and their chemical properties. It only makes sense that they had to have, have some understanding of the elements and atoms. Words like chemistry, astronomy, algebra are all derived from the Muslim countries and more specifically African Muslim nations before the advent of the European Renaissance. I don't know how in the world Western academic schools and book publishers think that in this day and time they can continue to teach this false reality that the European was the sole developer of science and other disciplines of knowledge. This is utterly ridiculous and incredibly insane for them to think that they could actually get away with this in this day and time. Why do you think young African-American kids in schools are rebelling against the curriculum being taught in the school systems? That's what's happening. They are rebelling against the state's standard curriculum studies. They know this stuff is a lie. Students today can find information on the Internet better than most of their teachers. They know much of what is being taught in history and science is a lie. There are many students who are not measuring up to the school standards mainly because they are rejecting the lies and false information that was taught to their parents and grandparents. There is something in their spirit that is saying to them, some of this stuff is just not right. I'm not inferior to nobody else. I'm human just like everybody else. So here I am. Deal with me. This is what they're feeling. So this is the problem. Now, we can classify all of the elements found in our physical environment under three categories, metals, nonmetals, and metalloids or semi-metals. Metals are elements that in general are shiny solids, can be shaped or stretched into wire, they can also be hammered into thin sheets and are good conductors of heat and electricity. What are some examples of metals? Well, we talked about iron already. Iron is a metal. Copper is a metal. Nickel is a metal. Gold, silver, aluminum, calcium, potassium, magnesium, sodium, 
and uranium. Uranium. These are all metals. We use metals to make money like pennies, dimes, quarters, and any other kind of solid money that we may desire. In fact, some metals are used in money exchange. Gold, silver, and platinum. Metals are also used to construct buildings, high-rise apartments, office buildings, cars, household appliances, and so on. Metals are used in the wiring of your home. That's right. The wire in your home is made of copper. Metals are also used in your cell phones, your HD TVs, right? The newer TV models, fax machines, computers. These are all made with metals. Without metals, dear people, you would still be communicating by smoke signals. <laughs> the second classification of the elements are the nonmetals. Unlike metals, nonmetals are not shiny but dull in color. You cannot make them into wire, and they don't conduct heat or electricity very well. Here are some examples of nonmetals carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Sulfur, helium, argon, and krypton. Carbon is a nonmetal. An example of carbon is charcoal. The charcoal that you use to start your barbecue pitch to burn your food by, that's carbon. It's a nonmetal. You see how dusty it is? The clothes on your back. And the shoes on your feet are made from nonmetals. These are generally synthetic materials or cotton. Then there are the strange group of elements, the third group, called metalloids or semi-metals. Their chemical properties cause them to act a little bit like metals and nonmetals at the same time. For the sake of this discussion, we won't talk about the metalloids. Although the elements are the fundamental pure substances that makes up the macroscopic world that we live in, there are even smaller particles of matter that make up the elements the microscopic and the submicroscopic worlds of matter. All elements are made up of many, many particles called atoms. What are atoms? Atoms are the submicroscopic individual particles of matter. You can't see an individual atom of an element. One atom is so, so small that it is invisible to the naked eye. Yet, when all of the atoms of any given element are stacked up side by side and on top of one another, you can see and touch 
the natural elements and everything else in and on our macroscopic planet we call Earth. There are a lot of these atoms in any one element found in nature. In fact, there are 6.023 times 10 to the 23rd atoms in each individual element. Let me repeat this again. There are 6.023 times 10 to the 23rd atoms in each individual element. Using scientific notation here. So let me give it to you straight. Let me give it to you straightforward. There are 602-214-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-000-
Recall that as far back in the time of the Egyptians, men of knowledge had already postulated the existence of atoms. In 1897, the English physicist J.J. Thompson postulated that if he applied enough energy to an element like iron or gold, in theory it might be possible to break apart the atoms in the element to identify smaller particles if they truly existed. To test his hypotheses, Professor Thompson developed something that is known today as the cathode ray tube. Now, I won't go into a description and complete function of the cathode ray tube since you can find this information by doing a simple Internet search. What did Thompson discover that would forever change man's understanding of his physical environment? Thompson discovered that when sufficient voltage is passed through a metal like iron in a cathode ray tube, a stream of invisible particles is produced. Now, how did he know that these invisible particles existed if he could not see them? Well, because Thompson coated the cathode ray tube with a substance that will illuminate, meaning to glow, when electrical energy strikes it. The invisible particles produced in the Thompson cathode ray tube struck the coated surface, causing those areas to light up like a 4th of July sparkle stick, revealing a stream of particles of energy. Using magnets, Thompson was able to deduce that the stream of particles produced in the cathode ray tube possessed a negative charge. In the end, Thompson called these negative particles electrons. Thompson concluded that atoms must also contain positively charged particles as well, which he later called protons. Now, why did he come to this conclusion? The scientific disciplines of physics and chemistry many years before Thompson had already demonstrated through experiments that all of the elements found in their natural states are not positive or negative, meaning elements are neutral. Thus, this led Thompson to conclude that for elements to be neutral, they must have a positive particle to cancel out the negative particles, giving all elements a zero charge. This is called the concept of electrical neutrality, or what some spiritual or religious mystics in history have termed dualism. In 1911, Ernest Rutherford, a research partner of Thompson, conducted what is now known in modern science history as the famous Goldfold experiment to determine what the true structure of the atom was. Rutherford confirmed Thompson's theory that the atoms of elements must have positive charges. However, Rutherford's research demonstrated that the atom consisted mostly of empty space with the positive protons located at the center of the atom inside something called the nucleus. 
and that all of the electrons were revolving around the nucleus somewhere out in the atomic space. In 1933, a scientist named James Chatwick discovered that the nucleus also contained another sub-microscopic particle he called a neutron. His experiments brought him to this conclusion because he knew from previous scientific data that the nucleus was far heavier than the mass of just a proton and an electron. Thus, to compensate for this weight difference, another particle must exist. Neutrons were found to have no charge, meaning they have neither a positive charge nor a negative charge. The charge on a neutron is zero. We now know that the mass of protons and neutrons determine the mass of any atom and that both the proton and the neutron are found in the nucleus of the atom. In other words, how heavy the elements are depends upon the number of protons and neutrons. Thus, an element consists of more than 600 hexillion atoms that are made up of protons and neutrons located in the center of the atom, called a nucleus, and that nucleus has tiny electrons moving around it. In science, we organize and identify all of the elements by the number of protons, the submicroscopic particles that carries a positive charge. Starting with the number one, we assign the corresponding element that has just one proton with the number one, and then continue on in subsequent order from there. Thus, Hydrogen is found to have only one proton, so its atomic number is one. Now keep in mind, this also means that the element hydrogen has one electron as well. Recall the law of electrical neutrality. Helium is found to have two protons, so its atomic number is two. Lithium is found to have three protons, so its atomic number is three. Beryllium is found to have four protons, so its atomic number is four. Boron is found to have five protons, so its atomic number is five. Carbon has six protons, so its atomic number is six. And so on, and so on, and so on. So this is how we do it. This is how nature is arranged, by numbers. We call these numbers the atomic numbers of the elements. All elements are listed in the atomic chart or periodic table by their atomic number. Now, to maintain a natural progression and order of the elements throughout the complete atomic table, science has developed another unique term called atomic mass. The atomic mass of any element is equal to the number of protons and neutrons of that element. We won't go into the science of how neutrons of an element are found, but note that neutron determination can be found by the use of a discipline of science called mass 
spectroscopy. So we've learned about the elements, atoms, protons, electrons, and neutrons. This is the fundamentals of atomic science. If you have been following me so far, you're in a good position. If you seem lost, we're going to pray that Allah bring you up to speed. Let's go on from here. All of what we have discussed so far about the atomic structure of matter was background to support the nature and measurement of time. Listen carefully. Surprisingly, science has found that most elements in nature are actually composed of sub-element parts that are almost identical. These sub-elements are composed of atoms that have the same number of protons but different number of neutrons. Imagine a lemon pie sliced into four parts and that the only difference between the slices is that one slice of the pie is topped with one strawberry, another slice of the pie is topped with two strawberries, another slice of the pie is topped with three strawberries, and the last slice of the pie is topped with four strawberries. This example is how the elements are composed of sub-elements, just a slight variation between them. When the sub-elements combine, they make up the individual whole element, just like the four slices of pie make up the whole pie. Of the 118 discovered elements, 80 of them have one or more sub-elements. We call these sub-elements isotopes. Many elements found in nature have isotopes. Without this understanding of matter, you will not be able to understand nor appreciate how time is measured. The sub-elements of any individual element are composed of atoms that have the same number of protons but different number of neutrons. In our prior example, the lemon pie represents the atom. The strawberries represents the number of neutrons. For example, the element carbon, one of the most abundant elements found in nature, has an atomic number of six, so it has six protons. Carbon also must have six electrons to satisfy the law of electrical neutrality. We've discussed this earlier already. We know from our scientific studies that the element carbon has three sub-elements or three isotopes, carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14. This is the naming methodology that we have developed and agreed upon in the scientific community. Here the number 12 is designated as the mass number. 
The mass number is the number of protons plus the number of neutrons. Carbon-12 means this type of carbon has six protons and six neutrons. That's how we got 12. Carbon-13 means this type of carbon has six protons and seven neutrons. Carbon-14 means that this type of carbon has six protons and eight neutrons. Can you see the pattern, the trend? These types of carbons are just sub-elements of carbon. All of the sub-elements of carbon have the same number of protons, but different number of neutrons. This is key in understanding radioactivity. Carbon-14 is heavier than carbon-13, which is heavier than carbon-12. The number 14 is larger than the number 13, which is larger than the number 12. The larger the number, the larger the mass. The larger the mass number, the heavier the mass. We find that most isotopes of the elements are not stable. What do I mean by not stable? Isotopes either react with other isotopes in nature or the light from the sun changes them into some other form of elemental matter. Carbon-12 and carbon-13 are stable isotopes of carbon, whereas carbon-14 is not. Carbon-14 is radioactive and reacts or breaks up over a short period of time and transforms into other elements found in nature. We call this observed process disintegrations of the elements, radioactive decay. Radioactive isotopes like carbon-14 are unstable because the atomic particles inside the nucleus are unstable. These particles inside the nucleus are unstable because there are too many neutrons too close to the protons. You should know that subatomic particles are not stationary at all, but are in constant random motion. In fact, because these particles are vibrating almost at the speed of light, they are constantly bumping into each other, and this bumping eventually leads to the formation of completely different types of atoms that are then released as radioactive decay particles. In science, we have named these released particles as alpha, gamma, and beta. These decayed particles are released from the original isotope along with an atom of a totally different element in nature. Isn't this amazing? You see how Allah is recycling the elements of nature, and most of us don't even have a clue of what's going on right in front of our eyes? Does not God say in the Quran that he alone is sufficient to manage creation? Allahu Akbar. Now, you may ask the question, is there evidence 
for this phenomenon that you are discussing, Professor Shahid, or is this just hypotheses or which doctor voodoo exercises? Yes, there's very solid evidence. We can detect or measure these radioactive decay particles by using an instrument called a Geiger counter. A Geiger counter is used to measure the level of radioactivity. Radioactive decay is a spontaneous process, meaning it can occur at any moment and with little effort, whereas the isotope of an element, the parent, loses particles from its nucleus to form an isotope of a new element called the daughter element. In science, we define the rate of radioactive decay in mathematical language called the half-life, or the time it takes for one half of a radioactive isotope in a sample to decay. Let me try this particular analogy to give you a clear picture of what I mean by half-life. Let's say if I have 100 pounds of water in a huge container to begin with, and I observe that 50 pounds disintegrated, decayed, or if you want to say evaporated away in five years, then the half-life of water would be five years because half of it disappeared. This means that in 10 years, we should expect to have 25 pounds of water left, since 25 is half of 50. In 20 years, we will have left 12.5 pounds of water, and we can keep going on and on with this process. Now, keep in mind, I'm just using water as an analogy so you can get a better understanding, a better feel for what half-life really means. From many lab experiments, we have determined that the half-life decay for any radioactive isotope is a first-order reaction. What does first-order reaction mean? In simple mathematical terms, this means that the radioactive decay pattern of any isotope does not change over time, regardless of whether it's been decaying for 29 years or 29,000 years. The radioactive decay for any given isotope has its own unique decay pattern we call the radioactive decay constant K. Since the K constant for any one given isotope never changes over time, this tells us that the K constant is related to the rate of radioactive decay by the straight line equation Y equals KX plus B, similar to the equation for the straight line or for a straight line Y equals MX plus B. Thus, by finding the slope of the line, the rise over the run, the numerical value of the radioactive decay K constant for any given isotope can be found. The relationship of radioactive decay of any given isotope 
And that isotope's decay constant, K, can be illustrated by the half-life equation T1 half equals 0.693 divided by the K constant, K. Once we determine the value of the decay constant, K, for any given isotope, we can determine its half-life, and furthermore, by mathematical rearrangement of the original equations, we can also determine how old an object or thing is. I am not going to discuss anything about the original equations used to derive the half-life equation. You can Google them yourself if you're really seeking the truth. Now, let's look at a real-world example of how radioactivity and half-life is used to determine the age of things. Using a Geiger counter, our research into radioactive elements tells us that uranium-238 slowly decays into lead-206, a stable daughter element so that by studying a rock containing uranium-238, one can determine the age of the rock by measuring the remaining amount of uranium-238, the parent element, that element which was original, and the relative amount of lead-206, the daughter element, produced from the radioactive decay of uranium-238. The more lead the rock contains, the older the rock is. The age of the mineral can now be approximated by its ratio of the lead to uranium divided by the rate of uranium decay. Most radioactive isotopes have rapid half-life rates of decay and lose their radioactivity within hours to days or a few years. Some isotopes, however, like uranium-238 or potassium-40, decay extremely slow, and their half-life decay rates have been calculated to be in the several billion years. Scientists over the last 60 years have performed thousands of tests on the half-life of many radioactive isotopes. By testing different isotopes found in our natural environment, we have refined to a high degree of certainty the half-life equation. For example, we know that the radioactive isotope strontium-90 has a half-life of 29 years. How do we know this? Well, it is a fission byproduct of uranium-235, and we have examined how long it takes for it to decay. Since the decay of strontium-90 in years is not too long or too short, we can physically measure the amount of the original parent strontium-90 sample and any possible daughter products that may already be present. Let's say starting at point A, we call day one. From that point on, every year, we test the original sample through chemical analyses to determine how much of the original material, meaning the strontium-90 isotope, is left. In 29 years, 
we find that half of the parent element strontium-90 has decayed into other daughter elements. Now, using the information from our 29-day decay to study, we can calculate our radioactive decay K rate constant for strontium-90. We put that information in our half-life equations and see how accurate our equation is. And, true to form, our half-life equation predicts that in 29 years, half of the isotope strontium-90 should decay. This is how we have developed our half-life equation and refined it to a high level of accuracy. By selecting random radioactive isotopes and using the same experimental methods that we did with strontium-90, over time we can better refine our half-life equation. So Neptune-235 has a half-life of about one year. Well, that's easy to test. Uranium-232 has a half-life of 69 years. Hmm, a little bit of time and a little bit of work, but yeah, we can do that too. Calcium-45, half-life 162 days. Easy. Fermenium-257, half-life 100 days. Ditto. Chromium-51 has a half-life of 28 days. Well, that's a cakewalk. Nitrogen-12 has a half-life of just 10 minutes. Oxygen-14 has a half-life of one minute. And nobilium-250, about one microsecond. Wow. Science has done these kinds of studies with hundreds of isotopes and found the half-life equation with a high level of accuracy will predict how much of the isotopes will be remaining over any given period of time. The discovery of radioactive isotopes suggested the presence of naturally occurring tiny clocks, atomic clocks, we call them, that could be used for determining the possible age of the Earth, man, and artifacts from ancient civilizations. This method of measuring time is called radiometric dating. All radiometric dating is based on the fact that a radioactive substance or the parent substance, through its characteristic disintegration, eventually transmutes into a stable daughter element, a new substance. By measuring the amount of parent and daughter products in a sample, its approximate age can be calculated. For a moment, contemplate. Think deep. Now, do you see why Allah says to man in the Quran, in Al-Asri, by the token of time? You know what a token is? A token is a small thing, a small gesture maybe. It's visible, but it really has no value. Have you ever used the tokens to ride the bus? Back in the old days, they used to give you tokens 
to ride the bus, particularly when you was in high school and you was going across town and it was in public in the public school system, they would give you tokens. You couldn't buy anything with it. It was just a small copper coin, but it was a gesture of good faith. You have it, you use it, and then it's gone. <laughs> you think you have a lot of time compared to this universe? Man, you're like a speck of dust. Compared to you, my universe is timeless and it's on its own time. I've left little clocks, clocks that have been ticking even before you came into being as a thinking creature. Clocks for you, man, to find in my creation that will explain much to you about this physical reality even about your reality. Clocks ticking away even within you. Now here you are today arguing about my existence, talking about you the original God. Yes, most of you are in-laws. This is Wal-Asri in the Holy Quran. In 1947, a radioactive dating method for determining the age of organic materials was developed by Willard Frank Libby, who received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1960 for his radiocarbon research. Radiocarbon dating, ladies and gentlemen, is another important atomic clock that we find in nature and is used for dating purposes based solely on the radioactive decay of the isotope carbon-14. Now recall that I mentioned earlier that there are three principal isotopes of carbon which occur naturally. Carbon-12 and carbon-13 are both stable. However, carbon-14 is an unstable radioactive isotope. Carbon-12 is the most abundant and stable form of carbon in our natural environment. That's the natural carbon that we're made up of. All living things are made up with the carbon-12 atoms. These isotopes of carbon are present in the following amounts in nature. Carbon-12 makes up 98.89% of all the carbon that we find in nature. Carbon-13 makes up 1.11% of all the carbon atoms that we find in nature. And radioactive carbon-14 makes up 0.0000000001% of all the carbon that exists in our natural environment. Isn't that a small number for carbon-14? Thus, for every one radioactive carbon-14 atom that you find in nature, there is one trillion carbon-12 atoms in living matter. 
The radiocarbon dating method is based on the rate of decay of the radioactive or unstable carbon isotope 14, which is formed in the upper atmosphere of our environment. Carbon 14 is produced continuously in the Earth's upper atmosphere as a result of the bombardment of nitrogen by neutrons from cosmic rays from out in space. These newly formed radioactive carbon-14 atoms become uniformly mixed with the non-radioactive carbon-12 atoms in the carbon dioxide of the air, and it eventually finds its way into all living plants and animals, including humans. In effect, all carbon in living organisms contains a constant proportion of radioactive carbon to non-radioactive carbon. What this means in the real sense is that the number of radioactive carbon-14 atoms and non-radioactive carbon-12 atoms stays approximately the same all the time. However, as soon as a plant, animal, or a human dies, they cease the metabolic function of carbon uptake. There is no replenishment of radioactive carbon and only decay of radioactive carbon. After the death of the organism, the amount of radiocarbon gradually decreases as it reverts to nitrogen-14 by radioactive decay. By measuring the amount of radioactivity remaining in organic materials, the amount of carbon-14 in the materials can be calculated and the time of death can be determined for any organic sample. Using the half-life equation, we find that carbon-14, radioactive carbon-14, has a half-life of 5,730 years plus or minus 40 years. By measuring various organic matter sampled around the world, it has been found that the limit of this dating method is approximately 60,000 years. It should be noted here that radiocarbon dating is a little bit more accurate than radiometric dating, and thus data from radiocarbon dating has been used to refine the original half-life equations. Another natural method that we use today to measure time is called tree ring counting. Dendrochronology is a method of dating based on annual tree growth patterns called tree rings. Tree rings are the result of changes in the tree's growth speed over the year because trees in normal conditions grow faster in the summer and slower in the winter. Thus, a tree's age can be found by counting the rings. Dendrochronology is the only method of dating that can date events precisely to a single year. Notice how accurate this method of dating is. You have been listening to the New African Broadcast, a media program dedicated to the consciousness and the positive moral growth of the black youth of America. Thank you for giving us your attention and tune in to our next broadcast. Assalamu alaikum.